Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm very pleased today to uh, welcome Dr. Benjamin Zavid. I'm not sure why we called him Mr. and all the, uh, all the, uh, the things, but uh, uh, Dr. and I'm sure soon to be Professor Benjamin Zavid. Um, ben and I first met uh, way back when he was a uh, graduate student at the University of Birmingham in the UK. And even then, everyone had identified him as a, a rising star, and he is, his star has only continued to rise. Um, he's just come back from a year at Harvard, where he was a research fellow working on issues of nuclear security and uh, getting to know some of the people in the current uh, administration and having all kinds of uh, interesting experiences. So he's a research fellow in the Department of International Relations in the Coral Bell School at, the, at ANU. His work focuses on politics of the great powers, nuclear weapons, and international security. And sorry, this, uh, this cut off again. Um, he's been published in a wide range of leading journals. He holds a PhD from the University of Birmingham, as I mentioned, and he has previously worked at the University of Leicester, Oxford Research Group, and Chatham House. Uh, and then he was at the Belfair Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard, uh, last year as a Stanton Nuclear Fellow. And today he's going to speak to us um, from his current work on Asia's role in the global nuclear order. So welcome, Ben. Great. Thank you very much, Luke. Um, thank you for the invitation. Really appreciate it. And to Carlia for doing all this work uh, in getting me here from the wilds of sunny Canberra. And thank you all very much for, for turning up today. So as the, the title implies and ridiculous... Um, title slide there that I've got implies I'm going to try and have something to say about Asia's somewhat unique role in the global nuclear order. A lot of what I'm going to talk about today really is a characterisation of what I see as some pretty serious issues and what I'm going to actually try and characterise as a, a two-part crisis in the global nuclear order. Um, but I will try and anchor this in Asia, uh, given that I'm speaking to the, the Griffith Asia Institute, as much as possible, because as you see, you'll see in a moment, I happen to think that our neck of the woods geographically is the single most important aspect of um, what I think of as a global nuclear order. So I'll say a few words to begin with about what I think is unique about Asia's role in all of this, and then I'll try and outline um, what I see as the starting point, what really anchors uh, the way in which we try to order nuclear weapons, and particularly the way we try and manage nuclear weapons and nuclear threats in international relations, and then outline this two-part crisis that I think we're facing currently. And then towards the end, I'm going to try and outline uh, what I think of as a set of broad principles and then a set of more specific initiatives or immediate-term actions that we might think about taking in order to address that crisis. So I'm hoping that I might be able to end on a somewhat... Uh, positive and constructive note, but you know, let's see how we go. Make count the chickens too soon. So, just to remind ourselves, this will be, of course, uh, nothing new to anyone at the the Griffith Asia Institute. Uh, is to just say a few words about Asia's fairly unique place in nuclear history, and therefore in, in the nuclear order. And of course, the thing that should always be in the forefront of our minds is that this neck of the woods is the only one that has seen the use of nuclear weapons in anger, in warfare. Twice in Japan at the very end of World War II, uh, in August, with the two uh, bombs uh, dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the United States. So the nuclear age in 1945 was born in Asia, as it were. 
even if you like to think of the nuclear age being born uh, by the first successful test by a state who would go on to weaponise uh, that ability, well, the United States, as it often likes to tell us, is, a, is an Asia-Pacific power too, so uh, there's, there's no way of escaping nuclear weapons in Asia. Not only was the first use of nuclear weapons in Asia in terms of um, that historical trajectory, then the first major test of what we refer to as the nuclear taboo, of course, was in Asia as well during the Korean War where uh, the state who had only relatively recently used nuclear weapons, only five years earlier, had to take the very real decision of, were we going to use these weapons again in this conflict we were in only five years later? And there were elements within uh, the US military, of course, very famously pushing very, very hard for this, to say this is the ultimate weapon, this is the greatest toolkit in, in um, the greatest tool in our toolkit, why won't we use this in this conflict that we're now involved in? And so the Korean War gave us the first real test of the so-called nuclear taboo. If that's historically, if we think about the role that Asia plays in the nuclear order today, it's worth reminding ourselves that of the nine states that possess nuclear weapons, six of them are major strategic players in the Asia-Pacific region, broadly defined. So the US, of course, has what it refers to as its Pacific coastline, uh, which makes it therefore a strategic player in Asia. And of course the US is the militarily dominant power in the Asia-Pacific region. Russia's eastern coastline is in the uh, East Asian region, and that's extremely important in nuclear terms. Um, because uh, Russia's Pacific Fleet is based out of Vladivostok and the nuclear-armed submarines component of that is based out of a, a deep-water port on the Kamchatka Peninsula. So Russia's eastern coastline is absolutely critical to its uh, nuclear posture and its nuclear force structure. And then, of course, uh, the other three, China, Pakistan, India and North Korea, uh, all geographically based in uh, the Asia-Pacific region or the Indo-Pacific, if you prefer that terminology. So in other words, the three other nuclear-armed states uh, that don't register here, being Britain, France, and the undeclared state, uh, the un undeclared but not denied uh, nuclear-armed state of Israel, uh, are the only other three left. And of course, if you listen to the British Foreign Office, Britain is a major strategic player in the Asia-Pacific region these days as well, and they're going to send aircraft carriers to save us all and all the rest. I think we can put that to one side and just say, well, at least the six that we have here, and really probably the six most important nuclear-armed uh, actors currently today, are all reside in the Asia-Pacific region. So whether we like it or not, that puts Asia at the heart of the global nuclear order. So anything that happens in the global nuclear order, anything that happens in the, in the ways that we try to manage nuclear weapons, reduce nuclear dangers, and so forth, at that global level, happens first and foremost in the Asia-Pacific region. We should also think of this in more kind of qualitative terms as well. Um, this includes a number of nuclear-armed uh, rivals and adversaries in the, in the Asia-Pacific region. So think of North Korea versus the United States, India versus Pakistan, the US versus Russia, the US versus China, India versus China. That tells us that nuclear-armed flashpoints, if they are to occur, occur first and foremost, and perhaps most importantly, again, in the Asia-Pacific region. Not only that, the Asia-Pacific region is a key site for what we refer to as extended nuclear deterrence guarantees. So extended nuclear deterrence, the idea uh, that you extend your deterrent guarantee, you uh, 
you design your policies in terms of who you are trying to deter and what you are trying to deter them from to a third party. Um, so think of the US commitment uh, to Japan, to South Korea, uh, to Australia. <coughs> the Asia-Pacific <coughs> is also the site of the world's three most latent nuclear powers. So by nuclear latency, we're referring to states who have kept the door ajar to a future nuclear weapons program. Normally by uh, having access to fissile materials, so the highly enriched uranium or weapons-grade plutonium, or when your uh, nuclear latent power, in terms of your, um, the uranium, it's keeping uranium that could be enriched to a higher, to up to 90% to a high enriched state. Uh, but not only that, it's uh, maintaining expertise, particularly scientific expertise and know-how as well. And of course those three states are Japan, South Korea and Taiwan. Uh, the world, three of the world's most nuclear latent states. There are other very important ones. Uh, there's a state in the Middle East uh, who might come to mind. People talk about Iranian nuclear latency. Uh, there's big concerns over Saudi nuclear latency these days. There's a bunch of others around the world. Uh, but the three who are thought of as being the most latent in terms of having all of the, the aspects that you would need to develop a nuclear weapons program in the shortest possible time that could still be some time, but in the shortest possible time relative to anyone else, all exist in the Asia-Pacific region. And for all of these reasons, because six of the nine are based here, because uh, the key nuclear rivals are based here, because those extended deterrence guarantees exist here, as well as elsewhere, obviously uh, important extended deterrence guarantees in Europe, because of uh, those sites of nuclear latency, I really think of the Asia-Pacific region, and again, or Indo-Pacific, whatever you want to call it, as broadly defined as you can, to be the place where all the roads lead and intersect in uh, nuclear relations, in international relations more broadly, and therefore where they all lead and intersect in important ways at the moment in what I'm thinking of as this two-part crisis in the global nuclear order that I'm going to try and outline for you today. Which takes us to trying to get a little only slightly more specific about what I mean by the global nuclear order. Thankfully, I don't have to do all that much um, definitional work as someone else has done it for me. Um, so some of you may know uh, the British international relations scholar uh, William Walker, um, I think recently retired actually from St Andrews University, who in an article in International Affairs almost 20 years ago described the global nuclear order as a normative order, albeit an order that reflects the interests and the technological and structural features of the time. But most importantly, he said it's based around these two central pillars. And he referred to these two pillars as a managed system of deterrence and a managed system of abstinence. So a managed system of deterrence. In other words, policies aimed at deterring the use of nuclear weapons in a particular way of managing those, those relations. And then a system of abstinence, a system that's uh, aimed at trying to stop the spread of nuclear weapons and trying to keep the numbers as small as possible and again a particular way of managing that and that's mainly through a set of treaties and institutions. In other words, if you think of the two objectives of these two pillars of the order, on the one hand it's to try and keep the chances of these things going off as low as possible and on the other hand it's trying to keep the numbers of them as low as possible. Right? The best way to think of that in terms of the managed system of deterrence, managed system of abstinence is often what we refer to and the first pillar of deterrence is uh, that managed system is captured by the phrase of mutually assured destruction. 
So it's the concept of states managing their deterrence relationships through acceptance, no matter how reluctant, of mutual vulnerability, that I will be as vulnerable as you will be, and that's how our deterrence relationships will be stable. We'll both mutually deter each other, right? Classic kind of Cold War stuff. Managed system of abstinence, if you want a nice shorthand for it, arms control treaties, right? Nuclear non-proliferation treaty, uh, uh, nuclear weapons free zones, for example, uh, particular bilateral deals at any one time. So think of the Iran nuclear deals. Another would be fit into that second pillar. So there's these two objectives for how we order nuclear weapons, how we manage them in international affairs. On one hand, trying to keep the chances of them being used as low as possible, managed system of deterrence. On the other hand, trying to keep the numbers of them in general as low as possible, managed system of abstinence. And sadly, I think the current time we live in, we see a major crisis on both pillars. One would be bad enough, two's worse, and two at the same time is really bad. And that's why I think we're seeing a moment of deep crisis in the global nuclear order. And as I've sort of outlined, I think that uh, hits home first and and most importantly in the Asia-Pacific region. So to outline what I see as these two crises, and I'm going to keep this based around the two pillars. So if we just take, we might want to have a discussion in the Q&A about whether Walker's right, whether there is actually more to the global nuclear order than these two pillars of um, deterrence and arms control either hand, but if we just stay with that for the moment. I think we face an extremely important and little understood crisis of deterrence in the global nuclear order, which has been driven by the development ironically enough, of non-nuclear capabilities. So this is what I'm going to refer to here as strategic non-nuclear weapons. So when we see SNW on those slides later on, I've tried to avoid acronyms where possible, but to try and get the slides a little tidier, if I'm referring to SNW, I'm referring to strategic non-nuclear weapons. Or other people prefer advanced conventional weapons. Um, I won't bore you to death with an extremely esoteric um, and geeky debate that's underway among amongst uh, a bunch of us who work on this stuff about what's the best phrase to refer to these things by. Um, Co-author and I used to refer to this as advanced conventional weapons, but then we started to realise that people just didn't fundamentally know what we were talking about, and they thought advanced conventional weapons referred to tanks and things like this. I've listed there a a set of weapons um, uh, on that left-hand side of the slide, but what we're really interested in here as a category is non-nuclear ways of compromising an adversary's nuclear weapons capability. So using conventional weapons to compromise an adversary's nuclear capability. So at the moment, this manifests itself in weapons such as missile defence, anti-satellite weaponry, uh, what's often referred to as conventional precision strikes. So these are conventionally armed, um, uh, precision-guided munitions, usually those that can travel at great distances and are often manoeuvrable. There's lots of... um, Uh, excitement about, for example, hypersonic uh, conventionally armed missiles at the moment. Anti-submarine capabilities, and then what I think of as sort of enabling technologies, or enabling platforms, and that's where you can lump in uh, cyber capabilities, particularly offensive cyber capabilities, uh, and then things like uh, AI, quantum computing, and the rest, that which can be used to augment uh, those uh, non-nuclear capabilities. Now, all of these can can be deployed and are being deployed by states in order to reduce their vulnerability to a nuclear attack. Which, if you just think about that logically, that fundamentally challenges that first pillar of the global nuclear order. 
if the managed system of, of uh, deterrence was meant to be based around the idea of mutual vulnerability, then a missile defence system, by definition, flies in the face of that. Because a missile defence system is designed specifically to reduce your vulnerability. That's literally why you develop it. All of them are interesting on their own. All of them, I think, are somewhat you know, important on their own. But the real strategic impact of these weapons is in their combined use and their combined deployment. And this is the point that is uh, far too easily overlooked in the vast majority of analysis on this. So there's bits of work being done uh, by the missile defence crowd and then you've got the kind of space war crowd who do the anti-satellite stuff and then there's the naval crowd who do the anti-submarine warfare capabilities and looking at advances in sensing technology and acoustics and that sort of stuff. Then you've got the cyber crowd who are interested in what's referred to as left-of-launch uh, operations, which is using <coughs> cyber capabilities to stop missiles from going from uh, where they are designed to go, uh, cutting out communications, blinding the enemy, all that sort of stuff. But what not enough of the analysis is doing currently is looking at the combinational logic of all of this. And what I want to do now is um, briefly and with profuse apologies, because this is going to get a little bit... Uh, kind of weapons techie strategic studies for just a moment, but it's important. Right? It's important for these bigger picture uh, political arguments. Is outline what that combinational logic looks like in practice and why it's so important strategically. Why this challenges that fundamental pillar of the nuclear order of uh, the system of deterrence. And I want to do this by outlining what I'm referring to here as a nightmare scenario of the combined effect of strategic non-nuclear weapons. Now, what's really, really, really important, and this has been missed uh, a couple of times when I've presented this, is that this is very, very specifically, that, that wording there, a nightmare scenario is used purposely. I do not think this scenario is possible today, nor do I think it's particularly likely to be possible tomorrow. By tomorrow, I mean you know, five years, ten years' time. But it's the spectre that this might be possible which is driving nuclear decision-making now. Right? If, you're a, if you're a decision-maker in a nuclear-armed state, you don't have the luxury of sitting back and saying, ah, oh, I've, I've looked at the science, I've looked at the capabilities, yeah, they, I don't think they can do it today. I, I think we're okay. You have to think through what are the plausible options, what might your adversaries plausibly be able to do five years, ten years, twenty years out, particularly given um, the long timelines in terms of procurement of uh, weapons technologies that might be used to counter these things. So what might keep decision makers up at night in a world with uh, widely uh, deployed strategic non-nuclear weapons? Why does this stuff really matter? So in this scenario, in the event of a crisis between two nuclear armed adversaries, and again, I think the most useful way to think about this scenario is not a bolt out of the blue attack. This isn't someone waking up on a Thursday afternoon thinking, do you know what, I might hit that adversary because I think I can get away with doing it now. I think what we should be thinking of this scenario as being plausible in is a scenario in which a conventional <coughs> war between these two nuclear armed adversaries is already underway and the risk of that war escalating all the way up to the nuclear ladder is therefore there. So in the event of a crisis, two nuclear armed adversaries where one uh, state A has these strategic non-nuclear weapons at their, disposable, at their disposal, I think it becomes possible to envisage 
a conventional preemptive strike along the following lines. So in the first move, State A carries out cyber attacks against State B's command control and communication systems. This might include direct disabling attacks on weapons themselves, but also on uh, early warning systems, as well as uh, attempts to obfuscate the information space around this. So this is both blinding an adversary, as well as confusing the communications or even cutting off the communications of the adversary. The second part of this is State A uses anti-satellite weaponry to compromise State B's ability to detect a preemptive counterforce strike and also to take evasive moves, such as moving road mobile missiles or putting submarines out to sea. This attack also compromises State B's ability to locate and target State A's forces or cities for its own retaliatory strike. Uh, we should remember that in the anti-satellite realm, that doesn't necessarily mean kinetic weapons. You don't have to hit the satellite. That's one form of anti-satellite weaponry which is being currently developed today. Um, but it can also involve uh, blinding satellites with lasers. It can involve uh, well, much less kinetic force to simply knock a satellite off, uh, off course. So it's literally not pointing in the right direction. It can also include, and this is hugely important for Australia, thinking about what might be plausible targets in a, uh, this sort of counterforce strike, it can also include hitting the ground stations that pick up satellite data. Why is that hugely important for Australia? Because we host one of these right in the middle of the country, Pine Gap. Pine Gap is a ground-based station designed for and used for picking up satellite data. One of the points of data that Pine Gap is specifically designed for, and for geographic reasons, is uh, early warning uh, data on ballistic missile <coughs> launches. So if you were to hit a satellite of an adversary, if you wanted to be really smart and hedge your bets, you'd also hit their ground-based station in case you didn't hit the satellite. Because data that's picked up by a satellite, unless you can beam it down to something that picks it up and makes it intelligible for a military to use, is essentially useless. So that's the anti-satellite component of this. Then, of course, State B's missile silos, its bomber fleets, its submarine bases, and its command control and communications facilities are hit with conventionally armed precision munitions, which have been monitored and tracked by AI systems in this scenario. These conventional munitions are also used to compromise State B's air defence systems, which would allow State A to conduct secondary bombing raids if required, uh, in this case using conventional large yield ordinances. So think of things like the so-called MOAB, the massive ordnance air blast bomb uh, that the United States first demonstrated in April 2017 in a raid against ISIS targets in Afghanistan. The underwater component of this now kicks in. So underwater drones are used by State A to locate and either attack State B's nuclear-armed submarines or at least compromise their ability to launch their ballistic missiles. So, for example, jam their communications capabilities that receive the firing orders or confuse their targeting systems, which are likely to have been already compromised by that earlier anti-satellite attack anyway. Further cyber attacks are then employed to undermine State B's ground-based stations for picking up and transmitting information, as I mentioned, from backup satellites. So even if State B has redundancy built into their satellites, you know, the first three were knocked out, but there's another five that can um, come in. If you hit the ground stations, those extra ones are essentially useless. As well as further cyber attacks against command control and communications facilities that weren't destroyed in the initial strike. Finally, State A's missile defence system. So this is now the uh, strategic non-nuclear weapons being used by State A, by the attacking state, is used as the final defence if the recipient of the attack, State B, is still able to launch even a limited retaliatory strike. 
So, for example, from a missile silo that wasn't destroyed or a submarine that was able to launch a missile salvo or two before being compromised. In other words, the missile defence system is only left to soak up whatever's left. This is the key point that is always missed in the missile defence debate. When people look at missile defence today and they say, oh, look at the testing, it's, it's terribly difficult to do, you're basically hitting a bullet with a bullet, why would anyone rely on that? The point is that a missile defence system is only, only needs to be as good as the offensive stuff that you use first isn't. Right? If it's only needed to use, only need to be used to soak up whatever's left after that first, um, those first strikes, what we're asking a missile defence system to do looks very, very different. And that's why the Russians and the Chinese have been so concerned about the US missile defence system. So those who say, oh, they're being facetious when they say that they're worried about US missile defence systems today completely miss the point. It's about what a missile defence system might be asked to do tomorrow. Now, preemptive counterforce strikes have been possible and have even been considered uh, over uh, the course of the nuclear age, what we refer to as the first nuclear age and the second nuclear age. Um, the first nuclear age, roughly period of the Cold War, the second nuclear age, the post-Cold War. The difference now is that it can be considered without having to use nuclear weapons. That's the key point from this scenario. None of this was done requiring State A to be the first state to cross the nuclear threshold since 1945. In other words, it's unencumbered by the political and ethical constraints on the use of nuclear weapons. And that, in a scenario where war has already broken out and could therefore logically uh, escalate to the nuclear level, makes that counterforce strike very, very tempting indeed. This would be less of a problem, of course, if uh, there was less of this weaponry being developed and um, less of it spreading around the world and changing those strategic calculations. Bad news on all of this is that the major powers in the Asia-Pacific region who are all nuclear-armed all have active, active, uh, active systems across missile defence, across conventional precision strike, across anti-satellite capabilities and anti-submarine warfare capabilities. So the US, Russia, China and India are all developing all of those forms of uh, weapons technology currently. To compound this somewhat further, a number of US allies have embraced things like missile defence, so think of Japan, South Korea, Australia plays its own role in that, in fact Pine Gap plays a role in the US missile defence system. And interest in anti-submarine uh, warfare capabilities and precision strike capabilities is pretty high in a number of those allies as well. Now, as I was hinting there, I think the, the crisis, therefore, actually pushes us to think about the way we conceptualise nuclear order in historical terms. So if we think about the first nuclear age and the second nuclear age, the idea of the first nuclear age was that Cold War um, confrontation, all about the central balance with the Soviets on the one side and the US on the other, and then the idea of the second nuclear age uh, was all about kind of nuclear multipolarity. And this is associated with things like proliferation, uh, India and Pakistan joining the nuclear club and so forth. I think the spread of this technology and what this does to that managed system of deterrence actually pushes us into what we should be thinking of as a third nuclear age. So very briefly on this idea of strategic thinking in nuclear ages, as Colin Gray um, a uh, British strategist on who just about everything else I disagree with when it comes to nuclear weapons, but on this one I think he's absolutely right. Nuclear ages are simply intellectual constructs used to impose order on history. 
And because of that, they're subject to all the usual limitations of periodization. Right? Um, so just as uh, you know, there are problems or limits with talking about, say, the Dark Ages or the Renaissance or whatever sort of construct you want to plonk on history and say this moment can be thought of under this rubric, nuclear ages are, are not dissimilar. So they, uh, they, they tend not to um, start and finish neatly. They sort of bleed from one <coughs> to the next. No one rings a bell and says, right, first nuclear age over, we're on to a second nuclear age now, and everyone agrees and so forth, right? However, they are extremely influential in policy circles, regardless of the analytical utility. So us academics can find all the problems with the idea of thinking of nuclear history and nuclear ages until we're blue in the face. The reality is policymakers talk about a first and a second nuclear age and change their policies accordingly. It makes a difference. Both material and ideational factors shape how we think about nuclear order and, and how we try to impose, his, uh, impose concepts on the messy history of the management of nuclear weapons. So both technological developments, the sort of things I'm thinking about with these new weapon systems and so forth, but also politically how we uh, perceive threats, for example. So uh, how we perceive the threat or the importance of proliferation fundamentally changed from the first to the second nuclear age and was, was wrapped up in it. By way of sort of summarising those ages again, so we think of the first nuclear age as being characterised by superpower com confrontation, a vertical proliferation, so growing um, arsenals in the two major powers in the Soviet Union and the United States, Arms racing, deterrence theory, the geopolitics of the Cold War, that's all the stuff that we associate with the so-called first nuclear age of roughly 1945 to 1989 or something similar. The second nuclear age we, we associate with concerns about horizontal proliferation, so the spread to new countries. The language of so-called regional nuclear powers. The language of so-called rogue states. Uh, concerns over non-state actors getting their hands on nuclear weapons. Even the terminology of WMD, weapons of mass destruction, so lumping nuclear weapons in with uh, chemical and biological weapons. This is all the stuff that we associate with the shift in thinking about the manage management of nuclear dangers to a second nuclear age. And my argument here is that a third nuclear age is actually being combined by, is being created, sorry, by that combinational logic and the proliferation of strategic non-nuclear weapons but also, very importantly, the political abandonment of an acceptance of mutual vulnerability. Right? Developing strategic non-nuclear weapons and deploying them is essentially a way of signalling to others that we are not going to be vulnerable anymore. We no longer accept a degree of vulnerability. So the defining characteristics, therefore, of a third nuclear age would be that a state's possession of those strategic non-nuclear weapons would become as influential as its possession of nuclear capabilities in therefore shaping its adversaries' choices in relation to pretty much anything that relates to nuclear weapons. Force structure, doctrine, strategies, even positions on arms control and disarmament. In other words, we're going to have to get used to talking about missile defence and anti-satellite weaponry, precision strike, anti-submarine capabilities in relation to the management of nuclear weapons. This stuff isn't going anywhere. In fact, it's growing and the strategic impacts of this is going to be very, very important indeed. So that's the, the, the crisis in the first pillar. And if you weren't um, over the moon enough about that in the remaining time, I'm going to outline the second crisis, which is perhaps a little, more, um, a little better known. There's lots of um, talk in the media at the moment about the so-called death of arms control and the end of arms control and so forth. 
And this really comes from a, a concern about recent moves, um, not necessarily starting under the current US administration, because of course withdrawal from the first one that's listed there in the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty happened under the George W. Bush administration. It was announced at the end of 2001. Um, but there has been a slow and steady trend towards unilateral withdrawal on the part of the United States from formal arms control treaties. So the ABM Treaty went first in 2001, and that was the first time that a nuclear armed state had unilaterally withdrawn from a strategic arms control treaty. Then, of course, not long after um, uh, the Trump administration came to power, about a year after it had been in, uh, it withdrew from uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, better known colloquially as the Iran deal. The deal technically <coughs> is still limping on, but doesn't really exist in any serious way uh, without uh, the United States' involvement. And then more recently, um, at the end of last year, the Trump administration announced that it would withdraw from the 1988 Intermediate uh, Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, which was a Cold War treaty that banned land-based intermediate range missiles, both conventional and nuclear. So actually the end in INF Treaty is somewhat misleading. Uh, and that just came into effect uh, only a couple of weeks ago. There is, in uh, the larger nuclear order, in that, that pillar of, of uh, managed abstinence, there is now a fairly large division between those who are, who are clear and um, very strident supporters of the non-proliferation treaty in the face of its new challenger, which of course is uh, the nuclear ban treaty that, came, that was negotiated a couple of years ago at the United Nations. Uh, so we now have a new treaty that is uh, that has been pushed, particularly by um, kind of disarmament advocates, are saying this is the new way we should be thinking about uh, banning nuclear weapons outright. And so there's a real division between what we might think of as incrementalists, who say steady, slow progress, we're getting there, we're stopping the spread, the numbers are coming down, steady as we go, and those who have basically run out of patience and said we're sick of a small number of states having uh, the monopoly on nuclear weapons while the rest of us do the right thing and, and abstain. Um, and uh, we've got a review conference of the Non-Proliferation Treaty coming up in May of next year, which is uh, set to be an absolute cracker, uh, where that division between the incrementalists and the disarmers is going to be pretty stark indeed. And the final piece of the arms control crisis puzzle, if this hasn't depressed you into you know, never getting out of bed ever again, is a fairly bleak outlook for further nuclear reductions. We are now at the point of having one single strategic nuclear arms control treaty in existence, which is the 2010 New START Treaty. So now that the ABM Treaty's gone, the INF Treaty's gone, the only thing that we have left is the New START Treaty, which is a treaty between the United States and Russia about limiting its strate the strategic um, uh, nuclear weapons that are deployed by both sides. So there's been this gradual decline in nuclear numbers since the end of the Cold War. That decline is slowing. The only treaty that keeps that, those numbers uh, that low now is New START. New START expires in 2021. It's possible that it can be uh, extended for five years, uh, but if that decision is to happen, that would have to be made by February of 2020. And all indications out of the Trump administration at the moment is that they have no appetite for doing so. Uh, there seems to be some indications out of Moscow that they have appetite for doing so, but the distance between the two is very stark indeed. And obviously the withdrawal from the INF Treaty and the disagreement between the US and the Russians about who violated that treaty first doesn't help. So all of this adds up to a fairly major uh, crisis in formal arms control. 
So if the first set of that was the, the crisis of deterrence, this is the, the crisis in the second pillar, the, the pillar of uh, managed abstinence. To, to compound that um, crisis of arms control even further is the interaction between the two. Right? There are no treaties, there are no meaningful controls on strategic non-nuclear weapons at present. There aren't limitations on anti-satellite capabilities uh, beyond the Outer Space Treaty, which doesn't really, uh, which only um, deals with the nuclear side of that. It doesn't deal with conventionally armed uh, anti-satellite capabilities. There's nothing that bans now that uh, the US scrapped the uh, ABM Treaty, which banned missile defence. There's nothing containing missile defence capabilities, and so forth. So there's nothing there currently. And we're about to introduce this, these new uh, conventional systems that are going to make uh, managing nuclear, nuclear relations extremely difficult. We could dream up some arms control treaties to try and control this stuff. It's made particularly uh, difficult by a number of factors. One is that there is a lot of overlap between the technologies. So, for example, if you have a missile defence system, you pretty much have an anti-satellite system. Right? The interceptors that you use for a missile defence system, they are just missiles. And if you can hit, if you have a, what's called a mid-course system, which means you can hit an incoming missile uh, in the mid-course range, which is in the outer, up, uh, outer atmosphere, that if you can hit something that's moving as quickly as an incoming missile, you can definitely hit something that moves as slowly as a satellite. So anti-satellite capabilities and missile defence capabilities essentially go hand in hand. So dealing with one means that you, by definition, have to be dealing with the other, so therefore they, they kind of compound each other. In certain areas of technology development, there is overlap between public and private sectors. So, for example, one of the concerns at the minute is increases in uh, sensing and satellite technology, which allows states to be able to track and monitor the nuclear forces of other states in real time and all the time. Now, in principle, you could imagine some sort of agreement or treaty that uh, limited the, your ability to put satellites up into space so that you couldn't see all of your adversaries' forces all the time to... Uh, so that it, you weren't reducing their vulnerability, the vulnerability of their force. You weren't, sorry, increasing the vulnerability of their forces by being able to track them all the time. The problem is, it's not just states who are putting satellites into space, and there's no reason why the private sector satellites that are up there couldn't be used by state forces in the ability, in the event of that agreement breaking down. There's also uh, partnerships between states uh, growing up on various weapons technologies. So the Russia-India partnership on hypersonic. Uh, missiles in terms of well, supersonic and then hypersonic in terms of speeds in their joint project of the BrahMos-1 and then the BrahMos-2 missile. So, for example, even if the US and Russia could smash out a deal between themselves on this stuff, you would have to, <coughs> therefore, by default, be including India within that because Russia and India have a partnership and so forth. I've already mentioned uh, US allies are involved in um, uh, missile defence uh, cooperation and so forth. So my... Final couple of minutes, if I've got it, Lou, sound okay? Jolly good. Uh, what I want to do is try and end on outlining what I think might be some principles for addressing this two-part crisis. And I want to start by just uh, outlining some broad principles and then I'll outline what I think could be some uh, more useful specific initiatives to be um, prioritised in the first uh, instance. So in terms of broad principles... I think we need to think about the general prioritisation of stability and risk reduction in existing nuclear armed relationships over 
goals of non-proliferation and nuclear security. In other words, we spend 99% of our time, in, in which we talk about nuclear weapons these days, talking about non-proliferation, trying to stop the spread. What happens now? What happens when, you know, when the North Koreans develop nuclear weapons? They do it in 2006, and now it's, what do we do with that? We're trying to stop the Iranians from developing nuclear weapons, stopping these dominoes and so forth. And I think that pendulum has swung far too far. So I, I'm calling for that. a general prioritisation of stability and risk reduction in the existing nuclear armed relationships over goals of non-proliferation and nuclear security, securing nuclear materials. Of course, that doesn't mean abandoning efforts on the latter. Far from it. It simply means rebalancing the amount of focus, energy, time and money spent by governments, NGOs and academics in favour of questions of stability, crisis management, risk reduction and perhaps most importantly, eventually trust building in nuclear armed relationships that already exist. Also adopting a principle of do no harm in relation to those nuclear armed major power relationships when designing new weapon systems, such as those strategic non-nuclear capabilities I've been talking about. Not only designing new weapon systems, but then thinking about policies and force postures uh, that are designed ultimately to address dangers coming from smaller nuclear powers. So that the argument always from the United States, for example, in relation to missile defence has been this is about trying to defend from uh, incoming attack from so-called rogue states. This is about the North Koreas and Irans of the world, Russia and China have nothing to worry about. I think we need to reverse that and adopt a principle of do no harm to the strategic relationship with Russia and China over uh, prioritising addressing uh, threats from smaller powers. I think it will also include rebuilding and acceptance on the part of, to some extent, publics, but probably more importantly, uh, governments, politicians, um, policy elites and so, th so forth, of mutual vulnerability in nuclear armed relationships. In other words, rebuilding the commitment to mutually assured destruction, that time-honoured concept from the Cold War. And that um, commitment to it can have whatever adjective you prefer in front of it. Tacit acceptance, reluctant acceptance, troubled acceptance, fragile acceptance, whatever it is. I think it will also require rebuilding a commitment to reciprocity in arms control and eventually the development of a norm against the unilateral withdrawal from strategic arms control treaties. And this is likely to require more focused work from us academics on new and innovative mechanisms for dispute resolution relating to arms control and verification disputes. And then the final point there, which is where I get to um, prove my card-carrying membership of the English school, is uh, I think it will require a commitment to the practice of nuclear great power management. So great power management, that's something that those of us who think of ourselves as kind of English schoolers are interested in. It's the unique managerial role of the major powers, the great powers, being based on agreed understandings about special rights being coupled with special responsibilities. And in this instance, those special responsibilities relate to crisis management and crisis avoidance. I think this needs to be grounded in notions of differentiated responsibilities, including the different responsibilities of those with different sized nuclear arsenals. In other words, the argument that uh, the US and Russia will no longer be bound by treaties between the two of them because those treaties don't bound, also bound states such as China or India or someone else, I think, won't fly. So they're the broad principles. The kind of specific initiatives that I think might be interesting to consider that sort of flow from that is early talks, probably track two, hopefully even track 1.5, and then eventually flowing into uh, official talks between the major powers, specifically on questions of stability and instability relating to these new forms of military technology, relating to those strategic non-nuclear weapons. 
that can have a strategic uh, can have an effect on the strategic balance of nuclear forces. So the idea of, of initiating these sorts of talks is about trying to gain the political upper hand for those concerned with issues of strategic stability early on in relation to emerging technology before domestic interest groups do so in various countries. So, for example, the missile defence debate, particularly in the United States, that ship has kind of sailed because talking about the strategic impacts of missile defence on instability with Russia and China uh, makes you look like you've got two heads in Washington right? because the, the domestic interest groups that have really captured that argument have really won the day that we need missile defence to defend from rogue states. And when you start to talk about this more traditional stuff, they say, oh, you're an old Cold War hawk, you've lost the plot, you have no idea what you're talking about. So getting early talks going on these other forms of, of emerging technologies, I think, is a key part of this. Work needs to be done, scholarly work needs to be done on the specific makeup, and this is for the kind of um, military wonks and nerds, the specific makeup of what deterrent rather than war fighting forces look like today that include strategic non nuclear weapons. In other words, I would love to see a world where those strategic non nuclear capabilities I've been talking about, anti satellite, missile defence, all the rest, don't exist. I'm not so naive as to think that I'll be successful in, in seeing that. And therefore, we need to have work done by the strategists to be able to outline what a force posture looks like that signals its deterrence objectives to the other side while still including some of this technology in order to reduce risks. More importantly, I think there is an urgent need for a return to serious and determined arms control advocacy in the face of the attacks and successes of arms control sceptics. In other words, we need to take John Bolton on. This should be based around outlining clear and compelling arguments about arms control being in the national interest. And finally, I've added there, I think this will probably require an immediate term focus on qualitative arms control rather than simply quantitative reductions. In other words, I want to see the new START treaty between the US and Russia uh, extended, but I think that's going to, we're going to need much more than that. We're going to need qualitative arms control as well. In other words, controlling the types of arms that we have. So things like um, thinking through what would a, a new treaty that controlled deployments of missile defence capabilities look like. That wouldn't have to ban them and out, outright, but you could control the number of interceptors deployed at any one time and so forth. All of this, to conclude, all of these prescriptions, both the broad principles and the more specific initiatives, are about trying to restore those two barely extant pillars of the global nuclear order, arms control and deterrence. They're not aimed at replacing either of these new pillars with something new, which may be the, the big hole in the argument. They are therefore, by definition, small-c conservative principles, and I think they're probably broadly informed by a realist logic, given that they rely on assumptions that are pessimistic about progress in the peaceful management of nuclear weapons in general, not so pessimistic to think that we can't do anything, but pessimistic about the, the limits of that, and are therefore geared towards trying to replicate and perhaps at best expand upon the small successes we have had before. Informed by the so-called logic of anarchy and the structural impulses that create security dilemmas and incentives for arms racing and so forth. That put immediate national survival above all other aims and therefore in general prioritise questions of order over justice in the management of nuclear armed relationships because this is not about creating a nuclear free world, although a properly realist approach recognises and grapples with the inevitable connection between order and justice in this, and I think none of the principles I'm outlining preclude taking steps towards a nuclear-free world. What this is about is trying to ensure that we don't um, 
go up in a mushroom cloud on the way there. But finally, they're all underpinned by recognising the limited utility of military force in achieving long-lasting and stable outcomes in any kind of order. All of this is about trying to regain a degree of common ground, of mutual understanding, about the central pillars of what our order should look like. And on that note, I think I'll leave it there. Great. Thank you. Okay, this is one of those uplifting weeks where we all go away feeling just good about the world. Yeah, that's right. Um, a lot there, a lot there to think about. So just catch my eye. I'll put you in the queue up here. Go ahead, Peter. Ben, thank you very much for that uh, thought-provoking run back to the 1960s. And if you wish to be Peter Sellers and star in, in Doctor Strange, I'll have to sit, you'll, I'll you'll, you'll have to shave your beard. That's true. Um, I'll have to buy a hat as well. Um, which I suppose, and Herman Cann is, you know, mm. this is just a replay of the 1960s, except, yep. it's, a, except some, it's, it's a digital version of the 1960s. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'd have to say it sounds absolutely crazy to me that that, uh, that the logic of this is just is just technically crazy, um, in that no one's going to do something that you couldn't test beforehand. So, but we'll, let's move on from that. Sure. I think your third nuclear age is brilliant, but the uh, construct excellent. It's a great it's a great buzzword. Um, I am worried about first up that um, academics pushing this, of course, means that the doctrine changes to use them, use them or lose them. Yep. Um, as in the 1960s and the 70s again, we've been this way before. Um, in which regard, that recent article about uh, the Americans having an automated launch on launch on uh, on, on detection thing last yeah. week was was concerning. Yep. The second thing, from the Australian point of view, great things. Um, previously, in this era, mm -hmm. um, the Americans got excited about sharing nuclear weapons. Mm. So, in your proliferation, it is now of no, of less concern. Do you think? Ah, yes. Do you think they should share weapons with us? Cool. So we'll go we'll again one at a time for a moment. So, yeah. yeah, correct. Thank you very much. Um, so I'll try and yeah, I'll, I'll separate the two. So the prospect of outlining these dangers, helping to, um, if you like, uh, kind of crystallise or then even perpetuate logic, logic, a logic of uh, use them or lose them. Uh, I think is an important point to raise, but I think I reject the premise that outlining and trying to make sense of something that's going on is what actually creates the use them or lose them logic. I think the use them or lose them logic comes out of the deployment of weapons and the postures that go with that. In other words, I think you're 100% right to be worried about it, but so am I. That's precisely why I think we need to be talking about this stuff. So. The idea that we can deploy a missile defence system we can, and say it's just defensive, it sits in its box over there, no one's got anything to worry about because that's just to defend us from incoming attacks, and simultaneously deploy offensive capabilities that can soften up your capabilities in a first strike, uh, that's what creates the use them or lose them logic. And so I think we need to be talking actually much, much more about this. I don't think academics talking about this stuff creates the logic. I think the logic is there for structural reasons. Um, what I think the role of academics is to do is to outline that for policymakers and get them to understand those links and say the argument that uh, has accompanied the deployment of missile defence to now um, that 
you know, this is about defending ourselves from limited attacks from small rogue powers. The big major nuclear armed states have nothing to worry about. We still have a deterrence relationship with them. Everything's fine. Uh, is patently ridiculous, and I think it's up to us to, to raise that. Um, that's not a particularly popular position. I've just spent the last 11 months uh, having these discussions in, uh, in the United States where they go down like a lead balloon, until, of course, you talk about the strategic non-nuclear weapons that are being developed by other powers. As soon as you start to talk about Russian and Chinese hypersonics, everyone wants to have a piece of you. But when you talk about the US weapons that are forcing them into doing so, it doesn't go down as well. Um, the, yeah, the question on proliferation is, is a, a really good one. Uh, in a longer paper uh, that a co-author, Andrew Futter, and I have been uh, working on in this, we outline, um, as well as setting out this, this third nuclear age idea, we outline a set of scenarios as to how the third nuclear age could play out. One of which is uh, what we're calling the proliferation scenario, in which the deployment of these weapons either promotes further nuclear proliferation, because one of the responses you do to another state deploying this stuff is you just make yourself a harder target to hit. I mean, this is one of the arguments that a number of us have been trying to make in Washington, that saying to them, if you look at the Chinese nuclear capability as it stands, it's at the smallest possible point that it could, poss it could really be in order to be a survivable second strike capability for China. If you want them to expand that, keep deploying the missile defence and the prompt global strike and the anti-satellite stuff, you're going to push them in one direction. You're going to have more ICBMs deployed, more submarines at sea, and the rest. So I think proliferation is a really, really, um, is a very plausible, very likely outcome from all of this. Now, uh, on the particular question of should the US share with Australia, um, this raises the, the, the big exciting debate that the old mucker down in Canberra, Hugh White, has sort of instigated on whether countries like Australia need to be considering their own independent nuclear capability. Um, it's always worth pointing out, because I think this has become lost in the, in the public debate on all of this, that Hugh is not arguing that Australia should. He's arguing that it's time to have a uh, more nuanced and sensible discussion about this. Um, I think how it relates to this is I think the development of these capabilities uh, probably makes that somewhat more likely. The point about refocusing on strategic stability between um, uh, the existing nuclear armed powers, as I said, I don't think that that has to come completely at the expense of pursuing non-proliferation policies. I think we should still be trying to stop the spread of nuclear weapons around the world. That second pillar is extremely important. But I think the pendulum has swung too far. Um, academic work, and particularly policy work, has become so obsessed with trying to stop the spread of nuclear weapons to other states that we've forgotten to talk and think and debate about uh, keeping the chances of those nuclear weapons that exist in the current major powers from going off. And that's how I think you get into this kind of mess. Um, would I support the US sharing uh, a sharing arrangement with the US on nuclear weapons? Personally, no. I think that does nothing for Australian security. I understand Hugh's arguments about the, the prospects of nuclear blackmail, but I, and I don't think even he actually buys that uh, at the current, current time doesn't mean we're not going to be having some pretty serious discussions about it in the years to come. Thank you. Did you start this? Because it started about 18 months before Hugh's book was published, obviously. Okay. Three yes. other questions in the queue? Sorry. should uh, get to those. And I'd like to ask one, too. Um, so we'll take two this time, if that's sure. all right. Yep. Uh, David and Nicola. First, uh, economists would say that politics is what gets in the way of good economic policy. It seems to me that pop particularly populist politics and nationalism 
or what's going to get in the way of anything that you can do, any any arguments that you can make about about limiting and about not about non-proliferation and so on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I've had a question about the civil society role, mm. and the question is, I guess, pretty simple: How, what kind of capability does the civil society have to influence that debate? I'll give a very uh, small, maybe not particularly relevant case study, but uh, for instance, if you look at Russia, you mentioned Vladivostok. In that region, uh, there, there is a site where uh, spent nuclear fuel is being dumped slash recycled. <laughs> Locals are very unhappy about this. Uh, massive pressure on local authorities, but what can they do? I mean, they've protested and so on, but not only... In, in the interesting bit there is that the, the government said, oh, yeah, we're actually using this very advanced um, Japanese technology. It's, it's much better. It's much more friendly. Locals are still unhappy. They don't want the nuclear fuel from their point, uh, period. And then this yeah. is where, even though in Japan you would have actually a civil society that is very anti-nuclear yep. militaristic, you also have the private interests. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe not a particularly relevant example here, but even in this sort of, you know, um, hard power strategic mm. matters, mm. what can civil society do? Cool. Um, I might even try and link those two questions because they're sort of getting at the same the same idea. Um, and in fact, I think my answer to the second is possibly the answer to the to the first. On the first point of um, yeah, uh, politics getting in the way of sound policy on this, I could not agree anymore. So this is that point about missile defence. Right? There is a really really straightforward logic that says deploying missile defence is a terrible idea for U.S. national security because it makes its strategic um, adversaries who are nuclear-armed less secure, which therefore makes the US less secure because it makes crises more likely. That's precisely why both sides banned missile defence as part of the SALT talks at the end of the 60s, and we got the ABM Treaty in 1972. And politics has run all over that and gotten away. And um, I think part of how we... So in terms of your... Um, uh, sort of diagnosis, I just completely agree. Uh, in terms of what we do about that, I think this comes to the point about what role can civil society play. I think for too long, and I include academics in this as well, but particularly civil society groups, have put disarmament and the achievement of a nuclear-free world at, at one end, and dealing with questions of strategic stability on the other, and that's the stuff that the hawks talk about. Right? Those of us who care about making the world a better place, we campaign for nuclear disarmament, right? which makes perfect sense to me, because I think a nuclear-free world is a more humane, just, and sustainable world. So why would you not uh, campaign on that? But that doesn't mean that campaigning for policies, good, sound, um, logical policies that make stability more likely than instability, that reduce nuclear dangers, is somehow mutually exclusive with that. And that is the position that not all, but many civil society groups adopted uh, during the Cold War. Right? Uh, the nuclear freeze movement, for example, one of the, the great sort of mo uh, great movements uh, in civil society in general, I would say, but particularly during the Cold War on nuclear issues put stability at the heart of their demands. They were also then saying, we think this is a, a, a waypoint on a road to, it should be at least a waypoint on a road to a nuclear-free world, but what we're really pushing for now is a relatively modest ask which will reduce nuclear dangers and reduce tensions. Um, we just don't have civil society groups making these arguments, even working on this stuff anymore. 
There aren't even that many academics doing it. So that's my argument about kind of rebalancing back to what feels like very kind of very old-fashioned, very um, you know, kind of, and the the dismissal usually is, oh, this is old Cold War stuff. Go on, get your head out of the Cold War. But this stuff hasn't su- the logic of this stuff hasn't suddenly drifted away because we think that time's moved on and we're in a second nuclear age now and it's all fine. That and the, actually the idea of a third nuclear age is essentially when the real problems from the first nuclear age that never went away come crashing into the, the, the waffle and the politics of the second nuclear age. And that's how we end up today. So I think it's time for uh, civil society to embrace a degree, to basically not give up that ground of, of stability and, and tension reduction to uh, the defence wonks who don't necessarily have the same goals in mind. Okay, so Diego and I have questions, so you go first. Thank you very much. Great presentation. And uh, what I thought Latin America was not uh, target, but thank you for the talk. Now I'm very concerned about my question. <laughs> I have two questions about one particular issue, cool. which is the space monitoring base in Patagonia, Argentina. Okay. It's a space monitoring base controlled by the PLA uh, in the south of Argentina, and they have another one that will maybe, I think, constructed as well in the north of Argentina, in Jujuy. Um, do you think that uh, an actual strategic, it has a strategic importance? Is the first one, I think, outside of Chinese mainland? And the second question related to that is that specifically one author, uh, U.S. author, scholar, is very concerned about this, Evan Ellis. And it's, the question is concerned with the overlap of technologies. Yeah. This agreement, or the agreement, because it, there was a lot of contestation about the, the construction of the space monitoring base, the agreement included a Pacific only use mm. uh, you know, clause. Yep. Do you think, but Evan Ellis, this scholar, says that it is really easy to eat, even in even if it is just for Pacific use, yeah. uh, to use it in case of cyber war, yeah. etc. Do you think is the technology or no, if they can actually. Yep. Okay. And I've got a couple, and apologies in advance, these are uh, fairly complex and not very well worked out. But it, it seems to me that um, there may be a missing variable, at least uh, I wonder how much you focus on this. So you've got the, um, the sort of demands for weapons from states, um, but uh, do you focus at all on the supply side? So let me come at it this way. Um, there, uh, there are a lot of interests aligned with producing weapons. You know, um, not just the, the military-industrial complex, you know, to go back to the Cold War. The, yeah, the big corporations and their shareholders, but also, say, the guys I grew up with who went to uh, get a job at Boeing and ended up making, you know, missiles that would carry nuclear weapons. Um, and, uh, you know, telling these folks that uh, they just need to stop making nuclear weapons is, is a bit like telling coal miners they need to stop making coal, except these folks, I don't know if there's some sort of clean, clean weaponry they can go into. You know? so, and with all these um, new kinds of weapons, the SNW, it seems like there's a lot more um, demand for weapons, so there would be a lot more supply for weapons. And it, it occurred to me, this, this angle of it occurred to me uh, when, you know, um, Donald Trump, rationale for not really doing anything 
in relation to Saudi Arabia when they tortured the journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi, um, he said, you know, well, we're selling them, what, $80 billion? They just bought $100 billion worth of weapons from us? Um, and so uh, the, the suppliers are his constituents. And uh, so it seems like there's a lot of pressure there. So if we're talking about actually addressing this problem at its roots, do we need to pay a lot more attention to the suppliers? And then the other question is, um, I have my suspicions that you might really be making some sort of defensive realism argument a la Kenneth Waltz, or at least I'd like, to, I'd like you to show me that you're not. So Waltz has that uh, piece, I, I guess in Foreign Affairs or somewhere, a short piece, you know, let's just give Iran the bomb. Yep. Uh, let's focus on stability, let's promote stability, let's stop worrying about non-proliferation all the time. The point is stability. Once Iran has the bomb, it will settle down and you'll have promoted stability in the Middle East. So by you telling us to, to focus on stability and um, you know, stop, stop focusing all our energy on non-proliferation, are we going to end up in, in de facto the world that Waltz thinks we should? Okay, so Great questions in there. First, on the, the space monitoring stations, the two of them that are now in, um, well, one there and the other, I think, still in construction in Argentina. Um, my technical knowledge of uh, what they're currently uh, either used for or to be used for is, is pretty limited. It's not something I've looked really closely at. I'm aware of them, um, and I think they're certainly of political and symbolic interest. Um, but I think you're absolutely right in hitting on the, the reason I would be concerned about them and why I'm concerned about any state hosting um, things like monitoring stations for those who are mixed up in this game, which, as I mentioned, includes Australia, is that question of what we call entanglement. Right? So this is the entangling of conventional and nuclear forces. Uh, this is a, if anyone who's interested in this, um, there's a terrific article in an issue or two back of uh, International Security written by uh, James Acton from the Carnegie Endowment about the new dangers of entanglement between strategic, essentially strategic non-nuclear weapons and, um, and nuclear forces. It's, that isn't actually a new issue. Right? So having missiles, for example, that can be either conventionally armed or nuclear armed and having them co-located so that an adversary couldn't ever be quite sure is, is that a nuclear armed one or is it a conventionally armed one or for example if an adversary uh, hit con what they thought were conventionally armed one and actually there were some nuclear ones in there and so that the state being attacked took that as a, a first strike on its nuclear capabilities so how you signal with that stuff is actually an old issue that goes a very very long way back but this stuff is compounding it and making it more difficult um, and the ability to separate these um, capabilities out and say these are strategic capabilities, these are not, this is for purely civilian purposes and so forth, uh, is becoming much, much more difficult in this regard. Um, so I haven't got much of a good answer for you other than, yeah, you're right to be concerned about it, essentially. Um, this is a really happy talk today, isn't it? Uh, on loose questions, so yeah, you've got two really, really interesting ones there. I think on your first point about um, the supply side problem, um, the military-industrial complex, uh, the kind of political economy of this. I think you're right. Um, as a, as a, you know, um, classic sort of old-school IR strategic studies person who does very little political economy, my instinct is is rarely to go down that path as a causal factor. I usually find it as yeah, of course, the private sector is essentially jumping on. 
you know, a, a bandwagon and making a quit off it. I'm not sure that that's what's really driving this as, as the primary causal factor, but I wouldn't ever rule it out. Um, actually, and this comes back to the earlier point about the politics of this. I mean, there's absolutely no two ways about it because I've had discussions with mainly with politicians, but also to a degree with some civil servants in multiple countries now about things like prompt global strike and missile defence and so forth, in which they bring up questions of, well, there's plenty of jobs in this stuff. And yes, it, there might be some issues we need to think about, but, you know, you need to think about the jobs as well. And I'm like, yeah, jobs are difficult to maintain yeah, after a nuclear war. Right? going on. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, in terms of which is the primary one driving it, I'm just not quite, ever quite convinced, but I don't think we should... Um, and I think the history of nuclear arms races tells us, in fact, the history of, of um, arms races in arms racing in general tells us that we should never neglect that that side of things, particularly civil society efforts. Um, am I a proliferation optimist? Am I a, a Waltzian <laughs> proliferation optimist? No. So this is an argument about stability. Waltz has an argument about stability, but there are others that said the other side of that is Sagan's. It was captured by the so-called Walt Sagan debate. Scott Sagan would argue, no, you get to stability not by proliferation, by the opposite of that, that the further spread of these of nuclear capabilities gives you more dyads to have uh, flashpoints and security dilemmas and all the rest, right? Um, my argument here is about a refocusing on stability between those who already have nuclear weapons, but it's a rebalancing. Right? It's essentially a plea to say, can we talk about stability between the nuclear armed powers again? Because for the last 25 years, we've literally talked about nothing but proliferation. So that's what I'm saying. It's not, it doesn't have to come at the expense of. This is a, a shifting back of the pendulum. Okay. I think a... And in fact, I think you can make the argument uh, that if we don't do that, it's going to help... As it, put it slightly differently... Um, addressing issues of stability between the major powers, looking at deployments of certain weapon systems and signalling and all the rest, for me is actually a net win for non-proliferation. Because as I was outlining, I think one of the plausible pathways in all of this is that you see much greater both uh, horizontal but more importantly vertical proliferation because of the deployment of this stuff. So as I was saying, I'm really concerned that the US are basically destroying the last uh, vestiges of hope of China holding on to its minimum deterrent by deploying these, this weaponry. And the more you do that, the more likely China is to expand its systems. We're already seeing, for example, India is developing a missile defence system, developing conventionally armed precision strike capabilities. What do you know? Pakistan's trying to push nuclear weapons out to sea because it's the last, it's the things that are hardest to hit. The more horizontal proliferation you have, I think, the more likely you are to have vertical proliferation. Um, and so I see talking about stability between the major, the nuclear-armed major powers as not necessarily being mutually exclusive with this. I think I can be a, a non-Waltzian, I can be a Sagan uh, nuclear pessimist and try and rebalance the discussion to, to stability over proliferation. It's just saying there are things that we need to be debating and talking about in, in the politics of nuclear weapons which goes well beyond should or shouldn't Iran get the bomb. So you didn't really mean we only spend 1% of our time on, on non-proliferation so, and 99%. 50-50 uh, so perhaps. It's something like a 50-50 rather than just completely reversing it the other way to okay. how it's been to now. Okay. Um, although, I should, to be completely honest, though, I am much, much, much less concerned about, for example, Iran building a nuclear, getting a nu weaponising its civilian nuclear capabilities than I am crisis decision-making between the US and China and the US and Russia. 
So I am, I'm more of an optimist than summer, but I, I don't think that means that we have to give up on, on non-proliferation efforts. Interesting. All right, great talk. Please join me in thanking <laughs>